Hi everyone, I'm Gary Nall. Nice to have you with us today. The whole purpose of this program is to empower people to make healthier choices at everything in life. To sit back and to say, what is the likely outcome if I choose A or if I choose B? And that's what we're about to do now. For example, the University of Barcelona, which is in Spain, an article published in the Molecular Nutrition and Food Research Journal, showed that the presence of serum metabolites associated with the Mediterranean diet components, meaning the chemicals in the food itself, is an indicator that they're going to have a lower risk of cognitive decline, meaning in just lay language, they will be able to have their brain working at a more normal level, their memory, their executive skills, being able to make decisions, their being able to walk into a room and be cognitive aware of why they're there and what they're doing, than someone living in America having the standard American diet. Once again, as I've shared so many times, the number one cause of disease above and beyond all else in the metabolic events, chain reactions, is don't look at the building that's burning as the cause or how it got there. Go back to this first of it. How did it start? In the woods, lightning strikes, suddenly you got a fire. It spreads, and you got homes burning down. So we always tend to look at the end-stage symptoms. And I say, go back to the beginning. What we feed ourselves when we're young, when our mothers are pregnant, what they have, everything counts. Even the health of the father in maintaining healthy sperm with good mobility and motility and to have a healthy conception and then have healthy attitudes. Everything counts. Everything is a piece of this puzzle of life. I'm just trying to share how we can go forward. And yes, we've all made mistakes with our diet and, and our lifestyle and our choices. But that doesn't mean we can't start over. We can. So quite simply, when you have something similar to a Mediterranean diet, which is probably overall the best diet in the world. No, it's not the healthiest. The healthy raw vegan diet is the best. And behind that would be a healthy living foods diet where you have food that is living, meaning it still have all of its nutrients, but it's been lightly cooked or it has been dried in a dehydrator or a freeze drying, but it's still good. If I make a sauce, to go with my brown rice, it's going to be cooked at a very low temperature, so low I can put my finger and not burn it. That means that the nutrients in the mushrooms will be released, in the tomatoes will be released, in the broccoli, cauliflower, the indole-3-carbinols and the isothiocyanates, the chemicals in the cruciferous vegetables. And by the way, everyone on the planet should be having one to two servings of cruciferous vegetables per day. That's your broccoli, kale, mustard greens, mustard, wasabi, horseradish, uh, Brussels sprouts, asparagus. These are, these are the cruciferous vegetables. And they help protect against cancer. And they help if you have cancer. So... They're just one of those extremely wonderful types of food we should put into our diet. Well, the Mediterranean diet's loaded with cruciferous vegetables and lots of beans. Beans are very healthy also.
So if we want a better brain, better cognition as we age, then the Mediterranean diet or something similar to it. The American diet, it creates inflammation. When you have meat, you have to cook the meat to keep it from causing salmonella, poison, listeria. And uh, in doing that, you create a chemical, a byproduct. They are called heterocyclic amines. Those are known cancer-causing agents, but they cause oxidative stress. When you brown something like toast or pretzel, potato chip, french fries, then you're creating acrylamides. Now think of a sandwich. A sandwich has the meat on it that causes cancer, that has lots of protein which causes estrogen imbalance, too much estrogen, which can lead to prostate cancer, breast cancer, ovarian cancer. Then you've got the bun, and that causes all forms of problems, including raising your blood sugar level. So that can lead to diabetes and obesity, unneeded calories, or what we call wasted calories. And then you have uh, the cheese that can cause allergic reactions, that can congest in the intestine, much like a glue, because in fact, one of the substances in dairy is casein. And that historically was used as a hardening agent. So it hardens also in the intestine, causing constipation, causing forced effort when a person's trying to move their bowels. Well, you don't move your bowels. The bowels move what is called peristalsis, a wave-like rhythm that's controlled by electrical charges, chemical actions, and muscular physical activity. It does it naturally. You don't have to do anything except give it a high-fiber diet, lots of water, rather healthy liquids, and no sugars and desaturated fats. The fats in animal proteins cause arachidonic acid to be formed, which then causes inflammation, massive inflammation, throughout your body. Remember, when your blood is carrying a nutrient into your cells, or is carrying a toxin out of the cells or out of the blood, it goes through the whole body. Your blood doesn't stop at the heart and say, no, we can't have that, and it doesn't stop at the brain. The brain does have blood-brain barrier, but a lot of toxins get through, like mercury. So, the healthier diet, the less inflammation. The less inflammation, the less free radicals and other, other types of free radicals. The less those free radicals, the less the cells are going to be damaged. The less cells damaged, the longer the cell will live, the longer the telomeres at the end of the cells that protect the chromosomes. The longer the telomeres are there, the longer the life of that cell. The longer the life of that cell, the longer the life of the organ that that cell is a part of, like the heart, the brain, the kidneys, the lungs, the longer you're going to live. Do you see the chain reaction? And it's all about the choice you make. So let's start making healthy choices, even if where our desire is to have something, well, I'm used to that, Gary. I like something salty and crunchy and sweet, and I'm kind of anxious right now, and when I get anxious, I, I want to eat this, or I want to smoke that, or I want to drink that. Okay, fine, I understand. Now ask yourself this. What is the likely outcome over a month, a year, a decade, of you consuming your comfort foods? Obesity, heart disease, diabetes, non-fatty acid, non-alcoholic liver fatty acid disease. It's a disease of the type of sugars and fats going into the liver. 
and dementia, and then the effects. The effects are these organs are going to break down. And then you just might as well flip a coin. Okay, what am I going to have 10 years from now? Well, I'm drinking a lot. Okay, there goes your liver. Okay, and there goes your heart. I see. And you smoke, there goes your lungs and your skin. It's not difficult. Historically, what we do, everyone does the same thing for different reasons. We have goals. That's good. Nothing's wrong with goals. Very good to have goals, depending upon what the goal is. Is it a constructive goal or destructive? Is it getting even? I'm going to get even with that person. No, that's destructive. Like the Chinese say, those who seek vengeance dig two graves, because you're going to be on one of them. And remember, the energy of your anger, your rage, the, you're, I'm a victim, and boy do we have a lot of those today, those are the people who hold in the negative energy. When you hold in the negative energy, it automatically closes the DNA's capacity to heal. You, you throttle your innate immune healing capacity. Because what is it that every medicine does? It tries to prevent the disease from progressing. But what causes you to come back to health after you take an antibiotics and stop the bacteria from proliferating? The innate immune system. All healing is ultimately the body healing itself. With the help of that which has intervened, you know, if you get a fire and you have to have a skin graft or hyperbaric chamber therapy, but that doesn't heal the body. You heal the body. After a heart attack, you heal from the heart attack. You clean out your arteries. You clean out your intestines and colon. You help clean out the brain. It is that detoxification process that we never give any credit to, never talk about. You'll never hear a word in the life of a surgeon general or a doctor about, well, you know, at the end of the day, you prevent and you help reverse disease. Medicine can help and save lives, absolutely, especially emergency medicine. But medicine doesn't cure you. Medicine allows the disease to stop so that you can build up your immune system. And every study in the world shows that. But why don't we ever discuss it? Why don't we ever implement it? Why don't we go into schools and show what really causes disease, the diet, the very diet that they're going to eat when they go to the cafeteria or go out to a local fast food restaurant or on their way home? Because we have a different model of life, capitalism. And then we have a different type of capitalism, vulture capitalism. And that is where people make money. So the goal is how much money can we make, not how many lives can we save. So we have to put things in proper perspective going through life. And we're not doing that right now. And we should. For everyone's sake. Everyone deserves to live a long, healthy, and happy life. Now they can choose not to. And they can choose to be mean and violent and and deadly, insensitive, and vulgar. We have all these choices on a spectrum. What is the likely outcome that without thinking about where you're going, what your goal should be, and therefore making the right choices so when you reach your goal, you've done so with ethics, morals, compassion, creativity, insight, cooperative, 
nature. You've done it the right way. Versus, well, I'm going to get there no matter what, and if I have to use my own manifest destiny, Gary, I'm going to do it. I'm, I'm going to champion. I'm going to, I'm going to get the golden ring. Then I'm going to turn around, and I'm going to show everyone the golden ring. When, when I make a, a football touchdown, I'm going to do a little dance in the end zone, like somehow this primordial instinct to show that I am the super alpha male on the field at that moment. My God, can't we grow up? You get paid enough already. This instant adulation, this chronic need for acceptance. Why do you think, by the way, right now, interesting study I saw, over 60% of men don't want a relationship anymore because it's just too much of a hassle. Well, it is. Now, there's good reason to want a healthy relationship, a happy one, one where you're in harmony. That's great. But there's also a good reason not to be in a bad relationship, right? A bad relationship is like being morbidly obese, having heart disease, high blood pressure, cancer, and saying, well, one more bite. Not a good idea. So as my mother said when I was about 10 years old, ask yourself what is the purpose of what you're going to do? Then what choices should you make so that when you have that goal, you'll feel happy when you turn around and look behind you. Right now, the gun goes off. Every medical doctor, every professional, everyone out there is in this mad race to some euphoric, special la-la land with pixie dust. They're going to have everything they've ever wanted because they're going to sacrifice everything to get it. Okay, and remember what I've said. Let's just finalize our our discussion with this. For every step up in the in this mystical ladder that you climb of success, it takes time. It takes a lot of hours. I got to do it. Yeah, I'll make some sacrifices, but later on, we'll circle back, and we'll have the childhood. But Dad, I, I won't be three in twelve years. Well, but we'll we'll do something together. So for the, until you get successful and secure enough that you don't have to keep working 70-hour weeks and making all the money you can so we can have an artificial standard of living and virtually no quality of life and no quality relationship and you won't be a quality parent and I'll be raised in this bubble and then one day I'll be a part of the woke generation and I'll be hating you and hating mom, hating your career, hating myself, taking fentanyl and committing suicide. Is that worth it? You bet it's worth it. Anything's worth it to be the doctor that makes $5 million a year, because then I'll be able to have the therapist so you don't get the fentanyl and you won't commit suicide and your mom won't be, you know, having, you know, uh, divorce papers written. No, it'll all be good. But it never is, is it? You see, there's a big difference between a perception of reality and reality. The perception can be anything you want. The reality is different. I've counseled in the tens of thousands of people I've counseled, the hundreds of thousands I've worked with in groups. I've counseled a lot of very successful people. Back when being a billionaire, there were only a handful. I counseled three of those billionaires. I knew friends from Nobel Prize winners. I've known the elite. And I looked and there's one question I ask all of them, every single one. Why? Why did you sacrifice so much that was essential to your well-being 
for that which was superficial. And rarely did I get an honest answer. So remember this. Here's the principle. Go for quality of life, not a standard of living. Go for health, not the convenience of superficial feelings, something that's based upon impulsivity. I want this right now. And everyone else is drinking that magic elixir. I better drink it too. No. Think about the likely sacrifices you make based upon the choices you make every day. There will be a consequence. Good, great consequence. Or you've destroyed your life, but you've succeeded in your career. And who wants that? Evidently a lot of people. But the wise ones don't. That's it. That's both our Classroom on the Air today and our health nutrition segment. We're going to take a break and come back. I've got a lot of interesting stuff to share with you today. Please stay with us. Welcome back, everyone. I'm Gary Knoll. Nice to have you here today. By the way, tonight on the Progressive Commentary Hour, we're having Dr. Robert Malone. He's an MD, PhD. He's a real scholar and for decades was considered one of a, the world's leading scientists. Yeah, he worked at the top institutions, Harvard and and uh, also out at uh, the major research centers in California where he created the technology that led to the mRNA vaccine development. And he got the vaccines, he and his wife, pro-Orthodox science, pro-vaccines 100%. Well, because he found there were discrepancies after he took the vaccine, and he didn't believe in what was being told, and he did his research, found out that there were a lot of inconsistencies and then outright lies. So he simply brought one of these to the public's attention, and for that, they excoriated him, canceled him. He was on the front page, middle of the page in the New York Times, one of the 12 disinformation people but nothing that he has said or done has been disinformation. To the contrary, everything that he has said has been proven right, as have his colleagues who also, not knowing each other, but the top of their field. He would be brought into the Defense Department and other agencies of government when they wanted the best advice. And now he's a pariah. So today he's taking a very philosophical look at everything in life and finding that Nothing in science today can be taken for granted because so much of science has been captured and corrupted. Our government captured and corrupted. What is their motive? So tonight, listen carefully. He's going to give you his opinion of why all this was manufactured. And yes, he says it was all COVID manufactured. And he has the evidence to substantiate it, as do others. So you won't want to miss tonight's program. It's going to be really insightful with new information. Now, I'm going to be sharing, as I promised, a whole variety of topics. For example, what's wrong with our, our college system, uh, of just how much they're charging students. That's a whole program I'm going to be doing, showing you everything about the manipulation of people to get them into colleges to take courses that the career is not going to be there when they graduate. So why, why lie about all this? Why not just be honest about how much of our jobs, the artificial intelligence industry 
and it's a big industry, expected to be the number one industry in the world with $15 trillion a year in gross income. Wow. And yet there are no safeguards whatsoever. So I'm doing a whole lot on artificial intelligence, taking behind the scenes, showing the people who invented artificial intelligence and the fears they have, but nobody wants to talk with them now. Now that they have fears that civilization itself could be destroyed because of what they're creating. Because everyone's on the happy, let's go bandwagon. So I'm doing this on multiple topics, taking behind the scenes, showing the larger context. I'm going to do it right now. We're going to play a clip, our first clip today, and I want to let our engineers in New York know. This is going to be from Abby Martin. Now, if you don't know Abby, listen to The weekend on PRN. She has a program. Abby is quite simply one of the best investigative journalists and interviewers in all of media. You may not have read her work or seen her interviews, but uh, we're going to show you just a clip, short clip. And then I'd like you to call in and share your points of view. Let's go to the clip. On September 12th, an Israeli Knesset party approved a plan to annex all of the occupied territories that would erase Palestine completely. This is considered an extremist solution to a conflict that has spanned decades and the so-called key to peace in the Middle East. But how do Jewish Israeli citizens feel, those who are not in the government or living in illegal settlements? Last year, I traveled around the West Bank to release a series for the Empire Files on the plight of Palestinians, featuring their voices and stories. But I also went to speak to average Israelis in the Jewish quarter of Jerusalem. We're here in Zion Square in Jerusalem, which the government has actually declared to rename Tolerant Square. And we're just going to ask everyday Israelis what they think about the situation. Uh, you're American. Where are you from and why did you come here? Uh, I'm from New York. Um, and I came here with my family when I was younger to make Aliyah um, because it was always my parents' dream to come to Israel because we're religious. So are you American? Yes. Oh, cool. Why you, uh, when did you move here and why? I moved here 11 years ago. Uh, my family moved here because um, this is the country of the Jewish people and the future of the Jewish people, and uh, we want to be here. How old are you guys? 18. 18? We're 18 years 18. old. Now we are here in Israel taking a leadership course, and we're going to the army for a few months to see how life's here. And then we hope to bring back some of this knowledge to our youth movements. So you're like an internship with the army? It's about two months and they show you everything about the army. Israel is a great place. It's a nice place. You should come and visit. Uh, like, I love Israel and I feel safe here. All that misconceptions are not, not true. Like, it's, it's, there's not people uh, with knives every day and there's not, uh, I don't know, people exploding. Palestinians? Yeah. yeah. No, but pretty much the life here is really good. For people living here, it's just normal to see people in the army walking around with guns. And you feel completely safe and protected. I feel like we know who the threat is, and it's not coming from anyone random, as opposed to in the rest of the world, that it could be anyone. Um, here we know we know who our enemy is, and we know that they are out to get us. Who is the enemy? Who's the enemy? That's, uh, that's a very good question. I don't think it's specifically any nation. I think it's the people that um, are so interested in being politically correct that they won't actually go after the, the people that are trying to cover things up. I think that, that, that 
the Islam is a, it's a very bad disease. Not uh, not just for Israel, for uh, all around the world. We, we can see it. They think they they all have to be Islam. If you're not Islam, they will kill you. A lot of Americans don't really understand what Israel is like. We hear a lot of things in the news. A lot of people are sympathizing with the Palestinian plight. Um, can you talk about what it's like to kind of live in this situation? Uh, first of all, it's very hard. I also am an organization. It's called Lahava. It's against the Jews who marry Arabs. Did you say the organization was did what again? We the organization is the the thing of it is to that Jews shouldn't marry Arabs. Shouldn't marry Arabs. Why do you feel strongly about that? Because Jews is a special nation that God gave it to the Jews, and we don't want Jews to get mixed up with it, together with a different nation. I think Israelis have to take over, and uh, they have to kick them. Uh, kick them away. It will be much better not to, not to kill them, just to to go back to to Arab countries. You can't deal with these people, there's no need to try, there's no need to talk to them. What we can do is when that they, they do enough harm, we retaliate. That's war and that's the situation that any Jew lives in Israel has to deal with. אוקיי, בסדר בעברית? פשוט מאוד, צריך להיכנס לשטחים וכל מחבל שעושה פיגוע צריך להרוג אותו צריך להרוג את המחבלים ואז הם יפחדו ולא יעשו לנו בעיות והכל יהיה בסדר הם יהיו בכפרים שלהם, אנחנו נחיה פה, לא צריך להיות ביחד והכל בסדר I think also that um, every Arab that doing a terrorism attack uh, we have to kill him and not because he's an Arab because he's a terrorist. I think you should uh, also kick out the family because it all begins with the chinuch. How you say Education. Whatever they teach the kids, the kids does. You know, it's families. I think that we need to... No, tell me the words. No, tell me and he let it again. I don't know how to translate really well. I, I think we should give them a country. If you're doing any problem, you just go in there to give them a country, and then it's going to be a war between countries, you know? If they're going to throw rockets, we're going to throw one big one and done. I don't think there's any answer to it. Really? There's only one way, like, I would carpet bomb them. You would carpet bomb them? It's the only it's the only way you could deal with it. Like or or try to stop them a different way. It it never worked. You mean all Arabs are Gaza or I I believe that they like I hope to believe they're they're not, but I do think they are. Because I never I don't I don't trust them. You can't trust them. And that's the only way I believe that the only the only way is just to stop it completely. I think that uh, we miserable the the Arabs uh, make a pigwim and uh, we need to kill the Arabs. <laughs> no. Okay. We'll talk about this later. <laughs> All right. Cool. Well, there is also. Uh, 
Jewish civilian, civilians that ate Arabs, yeah, I'm not saying, but we have also people that like the Arabs and everything, like uh, Smolanim. I think another thing uh, that the Jews should have rights to hate them. I think we have the right to hate them. I don't, I don't see a reason why not. I, I wouldn't trust any of them. To better understand this mentality, I also talked to Ronnie Barkin, a Jewish-Israeli citizen who grew up in the country and is now an ardent critic of the notion of a Jewish state. Like anyone growing up in Israel, uh, I went through the whole indoctrination mechanism. And we are being trained to be soldiers from kindergarten, literally from kindergarten. The moment I realized, I, I managed to sort of overcome that indoctrination, then everything became very clear because the situation is crystal clear. Uh, one of the main successes of Israeli propaganda is to convince the world that the situation is complicated. But it's far from being complicated. It's probably the least complicated conflict in the world today. Um, and, and it's all about basically those who have the power, those who oppress and subjugate and, and uh, tread over the indigenous people of land who have been oppressed and subjugated and expelled from their land. And this is what it's about. The situation here is not very different other than the way it is perceived in the world and among Israeli society themselves. They like to perceive themselves as some being something else, as being, you know, liberal and progressive and all of that. And I also thought of myself as such until I realized that actually, you know, this is not the case. The case is very clear and I'm not on the right side of history. And, um, and that's when, you know, the moment I managed to overcome this type of brainwashing, then the rest was very easy. So this one is all about creating a place which is for one select group and only that. It's not only the fact that they wanted to take over to usurp the land and the resources and all of that. It's also about this exclusive nature of the place that this is ours and only ours. And even any, any Palestinian being born in Israel, even if they're Israeli citizens, is already regarded as some sort of a threat to the state. Mm -hmm. The need to segregate, the need to separate and not to interact with Palestinians is part of Israeli identity. So we have to understand that Israeli identity depends on denying Palestinian identity and denying either the existence of Palestinians altogether or at the very least denying their uh, identity, their culture and so on. And also right after the ethnic cleansing of Palestine, right after the Palestinians uh, were expelled from their homes and became refugees, the very next thing that happened was that there was a concerted effort of mass looting of books and other uh, cultural artifacts from Palestinian homes, which was led by the uh, National Library in Israel. So, so it's for a reason that when we say existence is resistance for Palestinians, this is true. Just by very existing on their land, this is an act of resistance in itself. Even more so when they actually claim their rights, claim their identity, do cultural work, like produce Palestinian culture, that is an act of war. After learning a lot in Jewish history of, and Israel history, um, I've like seen that people make a big deal out of on about a lot of different areas. But if you look back, like correct me if I'm wrong, if you look back at the history, we the the areas these places are like really rightfully ours. Like if it was any other country that would have conquered these places or taken over these places, nobody would make a big deal. It's just because it's Israel and there's anti-Semitism and everything. They kicked us uh, about 2,000 years ago and we came back. We have Jerusalem, 
we build every stone here, every stone, 3,000 years ago. Over here, this, all is 3, years this is the city of David, mm. 2,500 years ago. All history of the Jewish people, and the Islam doesn't have history at all in this country. I think that they should actually look at a history book and, and look at the progression of history and who occupied Israel go further back. So if it, if it could be that the Palestinians occupied Israel, that's true. Okay, those are just some of the people she interviewed at random. She didn't exclude anyone. Just what you see is what she filmed. Now, mind you, this is a very affluent area. It would remind you of kind of the best of the West Village. All the shops and restaurants and dance halls and art galleries, it's all there. And these are people anywhere from about 20 to 35 years of age, and one older gentleman. But the overall consensus, and these are not military people, they're just normal citizens, they believe that either all of the Palestinians, 4.5 million, should be car carpet bombed. At the very least, if not killed, they should be thrown out as if there's a place to go. Well, give them, a, give them a country. Okay, which country in the world is going to allow millions of uh, Palestinians in? None. Or just put them in the Sinai, you know, in tents. Would you want to live in the Sinai desert, one of the hottest places on earth, the rest of your life, and for the next three generations? Because that's what's happened up to this point. Now, here's my larger question. Have we taken into account the following, just on a, context, on a context basis? Have we looked at those who have subjugated a group of people, large or small, under their control, where you determine what rules you're going to allow to be applied to the people that you are, have conquered? So you have the conquered who have to live by your rules. And do they have the same freedoms as those who are the conquerors? Can they go to wherever they want? Do they have any freedoms? If so, to what degree? And if you don't take that into consideration, then the arguments become very narrow. Also to those who believe, and there are a lot, that at one point in history, that uh, this was the land of King David, this was the land of the Jewish population, and therefore it has a right to return. If that argument were to be held in the United States and South America, 100% of the land would be controlled then today by Native Americans, and they would have us shipped off someplace else. Let me give you a little background on this, because among earlier larger rebellions, because at some point most people who've been in captivity of some type or indentured position were abused and have no resources to remove themselves from that abuse, they rebel. Now here's the irony, and let's, let's look very specifically at what I'm saying very carefully. Does a person who is being held captive in their own land have a right to rebellion? If their answer is no, because if they rebel at all, we'll call them terrorists, and therefore no one will feel sorry for those that are killed because, well, they're terrorists. 
So among the earliest large rebellions against perpetrators of servitude were the servile revolts by slaves against the Roman Republic in the 1st and 2nd century BC, starting in Sicily, which led to other slave revolts around the Mediterranean. Let's go to the United States. Between the First European War, by the way, those were called the Beaver Wars between the French and the Algonquin people, that started in 1601. And until the last war, yes, the last war was in 1924. That's a long time. They destroyed the Apache, but that was called the Apache War. And there have been over 100 smaller wars between the Indians and the French, British, U.S. government and American settlers, all of whom assumed that Manifest Destiny, something that was very popular with Thomas Jefferson, especially after the Louisiana Purchase, where he purchased almost all the land west of the Mississippi, except for that which was Mexico's, which became Texas, and we took it from them, and half of California. But during that period of time, manifest destiny meant that whoever conquers gains the control. So as settlers moved west, if they encountered populations of indigenous people who had been living there for hundreds of years, they had a right to take over the land, to destroy as many Native Americans. They were never held accountable for this. And that was considered an acceptable part of American history. The same occurred in South America, Central America, and Mexico. There was also many uprisings by African slaves, almost well, most were small, and only an individual plantation were quickly suppressed. So they, they would destroy a local area, but then they in turn would be killed. You had other ones. You had the Pueblo Revolt in 1680, or Pope's Rebellion and an insurrection of the indigenous Pueblo people in New Mexico against the Spanish invaders. About 400 Spaniards uh, were killed, but then in turn you had the entire expulsion and death of 2,000 Pueblo inhabitants. You had Cato's conspiracy in 1739, where African slaves rose up in the southern colonies that killed white slave owners. The Pontiac Rebellion, or uprising in 1763, a pan-native tribal uprising to oppose British-European colonization. And it spread from the Great Lakes to Western Virginia. And Britain had to rec reconsider its policy towards natives and recognize their autonomy. You had the German Coast Rebellion in 1811 in the territory of New Orleans. It was regarded as the largest slave rebellion in U.S. history. A lot of slaves were killed but only two whites were killed. We remember the two whites. They're in the museum, a really interesting museum. And if you ever go to New Orleans, I recommend you do for the culture, the people, the ambiance, walking from the French Quarter, which borders the great Mississippi at the mouth of the Mississippi. In any case, then you had Nat Turner. Now you've all heard of Nat Turner, but Nat Turner had an uprising in August of 1831. It was a really murderous rampage. He went to house to house, 
farmstead to farmstead, killing white residents. Men, 55 men, women, and children were, were killed. It went on for two days and gathered the kind of frenzies of others to join them. Afterwards, in came the white militias, retaliated in their own rampage by murdering 120 slaves. The longest, most costly Native American conflict was the Second Seminole War in Florida. It lasted from 1835 to 1842, seven years. Lots of the Seminole were killed. Then you have, I'm sure you've all heard of the ghost dance. Most people don't know what the ghost dance is. It's actually a dance of the spirit of rebellion. In 1890, uh, the settlers called it the Messiah War. War. U.S. military reaction to was to exterminate the entire Lakota Sioux ghost dance movement on Pine Ridge Reservation, a movement to reinvigorate the Sioux culture and values. There was a time, and I wrote about this in The Great, the Great White Killing Machine, uh, one of my earlier works, and uh, it was they would take all the young people away from their families, away from their tribal lands. They would take them to the schools that the government sponsored, and much of the Catholic, uh, Catholic order oversaw. They would forbid the speaking of the Lakota uh, tribe, the Sioux. They could not speak their own language, and they could not allow a ghost dance. If the ghost dance were done, they would destroy everyone involved. So there was no values of their native culture that were allowed. At the same time, secretly, they would try to do the reinvigoration of the Sioux culture of the ghost dance to allow them to understand they had a purpose and meaning in life greater than their suffering and to go forward and they would, they would maintain that heritage. Then you had the Caribbean and Latin America conflicts. Again, I'm only talking about people, large groups of people, who were suppressed by colonizers. And in all cases, history remembers the gallantry, the bravery uh, of the colonizers, but looks at all the people that they destroyed as, in effect, terrorists. You have the Maroon rebellions of self emancipated African slaves in Jamaica. It lasted from 1728 to 1740, and they would hide up in the mountains, called the Blue Mountains, and uh, to this day, their place is considered sacred in Jamaica. The tourists don't go there. I went there because I wanted to see what it was about, where these rebellions of the slaves were, were holed out and it was took almost uh, almost well twelve years before they were able to be all killed by the British. Then you had the Haitian Revolution from seventeen ninety one to eighteen o four. It was regarded as the only successful slave revolution in history, and it led to the first African led nation in the world. But we never hear about that. Then you had what was called the Male Revolt. Yeah, M-A-L-E. 
It was an African Muslim slave revolt in the Ramadan in 1835 against Brazilian authorities, who, and it was inspired by the Haitian Revolution 35 years earlier, eventually led to the outlying of slavery in Brazil in 1851. Then you had the, the Demeria insurrection in 1823, the uprising of 10,000 slaves in Ghana over inhumane conditions, and pacifist British preachers were sympathetic towards the slaves and aided them. The British militias crossed the rebellion. And of course, some of the most important were, in more modern times, the Jewish uprisings against Nazis, probably the most important related to Gaza. Between 1941 and 1943, Jewish underground resistance movements arose in about a hundred Nazi-run ghettos in Poland, Lithuania, uh, Belarusia, and Ukraine. The goal was to organize uprisings, break out of the ghettos, and join partisan units against the Nazis. And weapons were smuggled into the ghettos, and the Warsaw Ghetto Uprising was in the spring of 1943. The largest, most famous Hundreds of Jews fought the Germans and their auxiliaries in the ghetto streets after thousands of Jews refused to obey German orders to report to an assembly point for deportation to the concentration camps. In the end, the Nazis burned the ghetto down. Countless number of Jews, brave, courageous, um, lost their lives in that battle. Jews in the concentration camps continued to initiate resistance and uprisings, notably in the main killing uh, centers of Treblinka, Sobobar, and Auschwitz, and Birkenau. In Treblinka, there was an uprising on August 2, 1943, the largest concentration camp uprising of a thousand Jewish inmates. Inmates seized picks, axes, uh, some firearms stolen from the camp armory, and set fire to the camp. About 200 actually managed to escape but unfortunately were recaptured and immediately murdered. In the Sobibor concentration camps, that uprising occurred on October 14, 1943. Jewish inmates killed 11 SS guards and police and set the camp on fire. About 300 prisoners escaped and risked their lives in the minefield surrounding the camp. Over 100 were recaptured and later shot. A few actually escaped completely. Then you had the Bur uh, Auschwitz-Birkenau and the crematorium. October 7th, 1944, Jewish prisoners rebelled after learning that they were going to be exterminated. The Germans crushed the revolt and murdered almost all the several hundred prisoners. Only a few escaped. Elsewhere, cargo cults in Pacific Islands, notably the New Guinea, Togo, and Melissania, the indigenous ritual movements using witchcraft, sometimes violent uprisings, led by indigenous visionary prophets to restore tribes' golden age of ancestral potency that was suppressed and banned by Euro colonizers and their Christian missions. So I could go on, but I think that's enough to, to at least have a dialogue that shouldn't we look at the larger picture? How would you feel? If you had no freedoms except what was given, and they were very limited, you couldn't travel anywhere else in the world. You couldn't go out on a date outside of the encampment that you were in. So you had to adapt to very harsh conditions, 
worse than anything that would be seen in any city in the United States, including our most ghettoized areas of Detroit and Milwaukee, etc. And then one day people began, and you saw no end in sight, because the idea was attrition. Let them stay there till they die. If they revolt, well, we'll just kill those who revolted, but an awful lot of innocent people who are not part of the revolt will die and they will have no homes. Right now, almost one half of all of Gaza, which holds, by the way, 2.3 million people, there's no, there's no home for them to return to and there's no place to go. So what exactly are they supposed to do with no food, no water? And yet it, the entire media, I mean the entire media in the United States, has only focused upon the threat that these people represent to the Israeli public and, uh, and to their democracy. There's no emphasis, no discussion, no dialogue on what caused this, why would they be concerned, and should we be allowing our support to a country that allows for apartheid? which the word never comes up in any discussion. So if you leave all this important stuff out of the equation, as we historically do, then we only look at the colonizers as being right and everyone else as being wrong. Your thoughts on this, please. Our talkback number is 888-874-4888. And you don't want to miss tonight's program because, remember, it would be like having a modern-day Albert Einstein and that's as close as I could come to finding someone that would match what Dr. Robert Malone has done in his career at the Salk Institute in California and other places he's worked in contributing to what it means to be a human being, not just a science and a physician, but someone who has been so focused upon helping the establishment that he forgets how corrupt the establishment is. I'll be asking him some very tough questions. You were part of that. If this were two years, three years ago, I would have been debating you on every issue, on your pro-vaccines. I would have gone through every vaccine ever created and show you what's wrong with them. You would have rejected that. But now he's seeing other perspectives because he's no longer allowed to sit at that table of uniqueness and elitism. So it'll be a powerful conversation tonight, 7 p.m. on PRN.Live. Now we have time for one more clip, and uh, but I would like to hear from you. I'd like to hear your points of view, your input. This clip we're going to now is that uh, Rand Paul, Senator Rand Paul, is now we have absolute irrefutable proof that Anthony Fauci and all the people around him lied, that they knew that they were paying for and had for years been supporting biological weapons research and development. When you take a virus and you make it so it can be infected in human beings, and then you make it so important, you put an HIV uh, cleaved in there, you put uh, uh, mad cow disease uh, in there, you put all these other um, uh, connections to it, additions to the gene, and you have no idea what it's going to do because it's never been tested. So the entire world becomes a test. This is insane. This is absolutely insane. And yet, it was fully supported by everyone in the media, everyone in Washington, everyone in the big pharma, the medical community, and the scientific community, and most of the public. 
You talk about a mild psychosis, that's it. Let's hear what he has to say. But in a minute from now, BAI will be breaking away for their news. But we're going to continue right up at the top. And if we have callers, I'll take them before the show's over. Let's go to the clip now. I'd like to play a clip of one of your famous exchanges with Anthony Fauci from July 2021, where you're asking him to correct the record after he denied the government ever funded gain-of-function research. Let's roll that. Dr. Fauci, knowing that it is a crime to lie to Congress, do you wish to retract your statement of May 11th where you claimed that the NIH never funded gain-of-function research in Wuhan? Senator Paul, I have never lied before the Congress. And I do not retract that statement. This paper that you are referring to was judged by qualified staff up and down the chain as not being gain of function. What was, let me finish. Take an animal virus and you increase its transmissibility to humans. You're saying that's not gain of function? Yeah, that is correct. And, And Senator Paul, you do not know what you are talking about, quite frankly. And I want to say that officially. You do not know what you are talking about. What are your reflections on that, knowing what you know now? Well, it's a great clip in the, in the sense that his response is that his experts at the NIH have judged this up and down the chain, have judged this not to be gain-of-function research. Well, this is very intriguing. So what we have been requesting for two years is the discussion if his scientists discussed and debated and concluded that this was not gain-of-function research, let us see the deliberations. So one of two things are possible. Either he's overstating the case and the deliberations never took place, or the deliberations took place and aren't quite as clear-cut as he's making it, and so far the NIH has refused to reveal any of these documents. So these are not classified documents, but still the NIH is more secretive at this point than the CIA. We can't get NIH documents or HHS documents. We get, uh, there are several different articles or descriptions of discussions that we want. We have the name of them. They send it to us and it'll be 250 pages long, all redacted. So it's making it impossible for us to assess the truth, to have oversight, but it's also impossible for us to fix the problem if they don't let us examine what happened this time around. Yeah, you know, there was a redacted email that uh, really made me start to consider the level of deception that might be at play here. It was this February 2020 email that Fauci sent. You'll see it there on the left side of the screen, the redacted version, and the House committee uh, was able to get it uh, unredacted. And if you zoom in on this uh, highlighted portion of the unredacted email, this was with his kind of inner circle of scientists talking about this phone call where they all agreed they were concerned early on that this was a lab leak. And uh, that concern was heightened by the fact, they say, that scientists in Wuhan University are known to have been working on gain of function experiments. And kind of further research has found these uh, uh, papers like this one, uh, this 2017 paper, discovery of a rich pool of bat SARS-related coronaviruses uh, this was a collaboration between the Wuhan lab and Peter Daszak's EcoHealth Alliance and was funded by uh, an NIH grant. And the, you know, the highlights here just show that uh, basically they created a bunch of artificial viruses by combining eight different pat- bat SARS uh, coronaviruses with the, the WIV-1 uh, backbone. And then those viruses replicated efficiently in human cells. So I, I guess the, the 
the question I have there is it, it's clear in your book that you believe there's likely a, a level of deception here. If that proves to be true, what sort of consequences should there be? You know, it's a crime. It's a felony to lie to Congress. It's punishable to up to five years in prison. After we determined that Fauci did lie to Congress, that indeed he had funded gain-of-function research, we submitted the evidence to uh, the Attorney General, to Merrick Garland. But unfortunately, he's not done anything with it. A year later, when more evidence accrued, we referred him again for criminal prosecution, and yet nothing has done. But the thing is, is that everything that he's saying there in private, in that email, he's basically admitting it was gain-of-function. He knows that they funded it. He knows that the the virus looks manipulated. And yet at the same time he was saying that, this is essentially February 1st of 2020, four days later he commissions a an article to be written in a journal by his cohorts. One of the main ones was Christian Anderson. In private, Christian Anderson is saying, this is not a conspiracy theory, this is not a fringe theory. In fact, it may be the most likely theory that the virus came from a lab. In the paper that they publish at Anthony Fauci's behest, they say explicitly that a lab-constructed virus is not a plausible idea at all, not even plausible, not really to them virtually possible. They, in fact, conclude in the abstract of that paper that COVID is not a laboratory construct. Not that it probably isn't. It is not a laboratory construct. Meanwhile, saying privately, they think it's most likely. We have several of these scientists saying, I'm 80, 20, yeah, 80% lab, 20% yes. nature. Right, I'm putting it down now because you know, it's 1 50, some of them are saying. Meanwhile, in public, they're, they're acting with surety. They're acting with complete... More on that story coming up on our next program. Think about these issues, and then let us know what you feel. Listen tonight at the Progressive Commentary. You can watch it also. It was Zoom filmed. Have a nice day, everyone.